I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Good. You want me to go first? Go. Yep. Okay. Um, this is from Mysteries in the Mist mm-hmm. by W.T. Watson. <clears throat> in Monsters Among Us, Linda Godfrey spoke to Hunter Glenn Arnson about his experience and the emotional effects these obscurations can have. Arntzen was out at about nine o'clock during the deer hunting season of 1985 in the Escanaba River State Forest. The forest is near the community of Helps in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and Arntzen had just decided not to take a shot on a yearling deer he had spied. All of the sudden, the swamp appeared to take on this weird greenish hue, the witness stated. I mean, the trees, the ground, the sky all appeared this greenish color, even the air. The green glow had a definite effect on the deer Arntzen was stalking. It shivered and lay down with its head on the ground. At the same time, the deer hunter was experiencing experiencing intense feelings of sadness, remorse, shame, sorrow, and a lack of will to do anything at all, including stick his head out of the blind and look at the sky. This strange you in the air moved over the top of the hunter's blind on its way to disappearing into the swamp. As it did so, Arntzen reported that he felt it sucking the intense emotion of sad gloom from him and replacing it with a euphoric state. The green glows passing also seemed to free the deer, which sprang to its feet and ran off where the glow was retreating into the swamp. This odd emotional roller coaster was not typical of the witness, and he reported that he had not had this sort of down, then up emotional response either before or after the event. During the experience, he also felt that time had slowed down. What was actually only two or three minutes felt like 15 to Arntzen. If you will recall, one of the witnesses in the historical section dealing with the fairy mentions that a green mist is associated with the fae. In that account, the green mist was seen to waken the earth after the long winter. Deer season is usually in the fall. So is it not possible that a similar mist helps to settle the earth for a winter's sleep? My animistic heart would like to think so. (laughs) Nice. I thought it was pretty, I thought I liked that one. And um, also that it was in the morning. Um, Something um, I was listening to, um, uh, what's his name? Missing 411, David uh-huh. Politis. I was listening to him the other day, and um, he said a lot of people say that Bigfoot's nocturnal. And he said, really, out of the thousands of reports, it's pretty much 50 50 daytime or night. Right. So, yeah, it's like uh, I've been paying more attention to the, to the times of to day. The times, yeah. Yeah. Um, it made me think of a documentary. I saw, I don't know which one, <laughs> I never, <laughs> but where they did, a um, like a deprivation experiment where they took a, a, a group of people and I guess they had blindfolds and, and their ears, like they were completely, uh, deprived of their senses, Yeah. And, um, to see what happened. And 
one of the questions they asked them afterwards was, um, how long do you think you've been doing this? And um, the time's off, like how they judge time is off. So, oh, so wow. that's for me. Like, yeah, that's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, because... Yeah, I'm bad. I'm bad. Well, I know I'm bad with it, you know. On that already, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Without anything weird happening to throw you off. Oh, yeah. Even with my senses intact, I, I don't know time. <laughs> All right. Here's one. Okay. All right. Let me see if I can see the small writing. All right. Let's see. Um, in the November 1965 issue of Fate magazine, Albert Keltner related a remarkable experience which told of how he and his vanished sweetheart were reunited through the efforts of her astral body. Oh, God. <laughs> Myrtle Thayer had disappeared on March 17, 1959, leaving Keltner totally despondent. He describes himself as existing in a kind of robotized, robotized consciousness, desperately trying to find something to occupy his mind. Sometimes when he would sit in his room, staring at, the, staring at nothing, a mist-like form would appear which would gradually assume the physical proportions of his lost girlfriend. It would remain motionless for a few seconds, then disappear. After several materializations, Keltner spoke to the misty form in a voice as pleasant and soothing as he could manage under the circumstances. As, as we became better acquainted, Keltner writes, it began to extend its visits. I would say, hello, dear. You are a woman, aren't you? The head nods slowly. It never spoke audibly, only by signs or movements. After numerous visitations, Keltner discovered that he could communicate telepathically with his ethereal friend ethereal friend. Do you know where my sweetheart is? He asked. Immediately, the form answered, yes, I am she. I was in a car accident the evening I left you. I'm in a hospital, alive but unconscious. Stay where you are. I'll find you. Wait. I, I can't remember clearly. My, my body must be healed again. It will take a while. I don't know how long. My neck is broken. This is crazy, right? Like, <laughs> um, Keltner wanted to know if there was not something that he could do to help her. And he explained that he had already contacted the Missing Persons Bureau with no results. And he wanted to know a dozen things, such as the name of the hospital in which her unconscious body lay. The misty white form told him that there was nothing that he could do to help her now. I will come to you again when I'm feeling better, she said. Albert Keltner waited another week, a month, a year. But the image of his sweetheart did not reappear. Perhaps the astral body had only wished to make contact to let him know that she still lived in the physical body. But we can imagine the thoughts that must have gone through Keltner's confused brain. <laughs> he must have wondered if that misty form had really been that of his love. And if it had been, was she now dead since she no longer appeared to him? Keltner writes that he tried to forget his misty maiden, but he remained single, haunted by her plea that he wait for her. On the morning of July 3rd, 1964, 
more than five years after Myrtle Thayer had disappeared, the smoky, transparent image of a woman once again appeared to Keltner as he sat relaxing in an easy chair. When Keltner expressed his concern over her long absence, the entity replied that nothing bad had happened. It will take only a short while now for my body is almost healed. If you will go to the local laundromat on August 2nd, there will be a bigger surprise for you. Keltner resolved to keep the appointment. On the second day of August, he collected his soiled laundry and went to the laundromat. He had just selected a machine and had begun to place his clothes into, into it when he heard a familiar voice behind him. He turned in amazement to see the sweetheart whom he had not seen in the physical body for many years. Once they had recovered from their astonishment in having accomplished such a miraculous meeting, Little explained her disappearance. The day she left Albert, she had become involved in a five-car collision, which had been caused by a loaded gravel truck that had gone out of control. The runaway truck had ripped, tip, had tipped over Myrtle's car and demolished it. Her neck had been broken and her memory impaired. As she lay there unconscious, her astral double had appeared to Keltner in his apartment. Later, as the years passed, Myrtle had regained consciousness, but her damaged memory prevented her from remembering the name of her beloved. How about that? <laughs> she can't remember how to find him because she can't remember his name. But she can't. Um, oh, okay. Shortly before her release from the hospital, she had once again contacted Albert in her astral body and arranged a rendezvous at the laundromat. Although her memory could not provide her with Albert's name, Myrtle's essential self did not have to bother with such physical handicaps. Her astral body could transcend time and space and simply be there before the sweetheart promised to wait. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. It's like a beautiful story. It's like sweet. Yeah. That's crazy. And then, and then for her to like, you know, to kind of wake up and we're getting consciousness, but her memory's effed up. And yeah. <laughs> I remember him, but I have no effing idea what his name is to so look him up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was from. Oh, it's not me, but I actually got it out of a uh, otherworldly affairs by Brad. Oh yeah, I, mm -hmm. I like that one. Yeah. All right, I got one from uh, a book called Mountain Ghost Stories and Curious Tales of Western North Carolina. Nice. By Randy Russell and Janet Barnett. And this is called Fairy Crosses and the Immortal Nunahi. And I'm not yeah. sure. The I'm not sure the pronunciation. It's N U N N E H I, but I think Nunahi's pretty close. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> Among the grandeur of the ancient and expansive mountain ranges of Western North Carolina are small things a visitor should not overlook. Sprinkled in the midst of large rock formations, cascading waterfalls, steep valleys and gorges, and towering trees are occasional, occasional small bursts of color. Rubies and other gemstones may be found throughout the area. If one looks closely enough, red, orange, white, and yellow mushrooms can be seen brightening the underbush, underbrush. Mm -hmm. Populating the folklore of the Cherokee are numerous little people who were an integral part of the abundant small life of the mountain forest. These include the Nunahi immortals and the mysterious moon-eyed people. The <laughs> Nunahi were invisible at will and could be seen when they wanted to be. Those spirits akin to mountain fairies, I love that, mountain fairies, 
The Nunahee at times resembled the Cherokee Indians in the way they acted and spoke. The Nunahee lived throughout the mountains, but they are most closely associated with the town of Franklin. Franklin, the seat of Macon County, overlooks the valley of the Little Tennessee River from its altitude of 2,113 feet. It was built on the site of the sacred Cherokee city of Nequasi, near which the noted Indian mound can still be found. The mound that supported the sacred house where important Indian councils were held. The Cherokee did not construct Indian mound, however. They claimed that a perpetual flame burned within the mound, which was the home of the Nunahee. Like other fairies around the world, the Nunahee much enjoyed music and dancing. But it was a rare instance when a Cherokee hunter happened to catch a glimpse of the spirited forest festivals of the Nunahee. Hunters in the mountains did report, though, hearing the dance songs and the drums. Yet when an Indian approached the party, it seemed to move. Then the noise would mysteriously be heard behind the befuddled hunters or in the distance in another direction altogether. Cherokee hunters ran themselves in circles in search of the source of the Nunahee music. Though the Nunahee were considered friendly, an Indian never attended one of their dances without being invited. The Nunahee were credited with assisting Cherokee who were lost in the forest, particularly in winter. The Nunahee on these occasions would appear from their world of invisibility to bring the lost person inside their townhouses under the mountains. There the lost soul would be rested and warmed. Once revived, the lost Indian would be guided back to the Cherokee village. The Nunahee did more than offer comfort to the lost Indian in the winter mountains. More than once or twice, the Nunahee warriors also came out of hiding to help the Cherokee in battle whenever it seemed the Cherokee might be losing. In fact, the Nunahee saved the Cherokee from defeat in the defense of Nikwasi, present-day Franklin. In the rich folklore of the Cherokee, there is a story told by a respected elder of an eerie experience he had in the mountainous Nantahala forest when he was a boy of 10. Bored with practicing his bow and arrow, the boy was building a fish trap in the river by stacking stones into two long walls across the water. A stranger approached and watched him lifting and carrying the heavy stones. As the boy tired, the stranger suggested he needed a rest and invited him to walk upriver where there was plenty to eat at the stranger's house if the boy was hungry. He was. The boy accompanied the stranger. Inside the home, the stranger's wife was preparing dinner for a group of people. All were strangers to the boy, but they were pleased that the youngster had come for dinner. Still, the boy was apprehensive, and this was apparent to the adults. To show the young Cherokee that they meant him no harm, the strangers invited in a man the boy knew. It was Utsi Scala, a friend of the boy's father. With Utsi Scala present, the boy decided that it must be all right for him to stay, and the entire group enjoyed a fine meal. Tired and well-fed, the boy fell contently asleep by the fire. In the morning, he woke unafraid, though Utsi Scala was no longer there. After breakfast, the stranger and the boy set out down a path toward the boy's home. There was a field of golden corn on one side of the path and a peach orchard on the other. They soon came upon another trail and the stranger told the boy to follow it to the river. The young Cherokee knew the river would lead him home. The stranger said goodbye and turned back along the orchard trail toward his home as the boy walked the trail that led to the river. After a short distance, the youngster realized he had forgotten to thank the stranger for his hospitality. He turned around to do so and discovered the stranger had already disappeared from sight. Hmm. Boy ran back along the trail a short distance to catch up to the stranger, then stopped abruptly, seeing that there was no longer a cornfield on one side of the path. Spinning on his heels, the boy saw the peach orchard had disappeared from the landscape as well. Hmm. 
the boy didn't realize it, but he had just returned from the invisible land of the Nunahi. He made his way to his village and learned that his people had searched him for him throughout the night. The boy's family was worried that he had drowned in the river. Embarrassed by the trouble he'd caused, the youth quickly explained where he had been. He said that since he had seen Utsi Scala, he assumed his parents would be told where he was. Utsi Scala was among the villagers who had gathered upon the boy's return. He quickly stepped forward. I was out all night in my canoe looking for you, he told the boy. It was one of the mm-hmm. nuns who made himself look like me. With his family and other villagers, the boy returned to the place where he'd spent the night. They searched the entire area on both sides of the ridge, but a house was never located. Neither was the cornfield nor the orchard of peach trees. It was agreed by all that the Nunahi had taken on the appearance of Cherokee Indians in an effort to make the youth comfortable. The Nunahi so enjoyed music that they sometimes attended the dances of the Cherokee. I like this one. On one occasion, four attractive women dropped by a Cherokee dance. It was assumed that they were from another village and were drawn to the party by music. The women proved popular and lively dancers, attracting the attention of several Indian bachelors. It was very late when the dancing finally ended, and four young Cherokee volunteered volunteered to walk the women home (laughs) to guarantee their safety through the forest at night. The young men followed the pretty women at a respectful distance on the trail. Then the four Cherokee men stood aghast as they watched the visiting dancers walk into the river and disappear before their eyes. One of the Indians beat the water with his hands out of frustration while the other searched the area. The women were none of he who lived under the river and who had taken on the appearance of Cherokee because they so loved dancing. Since the Nunahee were believed to be immortal, some have suggested that they were the spirits of dead Cherokee. This assumption is incorrect because the Nunahee inhabited the Nantahala National Forest long before the arrival of the Cherokee. And if mountain folklore is to be believed, they will continue to live under the mountains and streams long after the Cherokee are gone. Numerous other diminutive spirits and fairies were believed to dwell in the forested mountains. The moon-eyed people were a race of men much smaller than the Cherokee with white skin, bearded faces, and blue eyes. Mm -hmm. They lived in the mountains of Tennessee and North Carolina. According to Cherokee legend, the moon-eyed people inhabited the area long before the Spaniards came in search of gold. The Cherokee knew of their existence because of a line of fortifications constructed by the Moonine people. A series of small round, <clears throat> small mounds and stacked rocks arranged from one end of the region to the other. The Moonide people dwelt in small rounded houses of branches and mud. Blinded by sunlight, they only came out at night to hunt fish and gather food. During a full moon, they were as blind as in daylight. The warning creek, the warring creeks, it was said, journeyed from the south to drive the little people from their homeland during a full moon. This happened at a time before history, according to the Cherokee. It remains forever a mystery where the moon-eyed people went. There do exist a number of crumbling mounds and fortifications that the Cherokee disclaimed. It is quite possible that there was a race of Native Americans living in the area before the Cherokee arrived from the southeast. Whatever primitive race of humans inhabited the mountains of western North Carolina before the Cherokee, it is the vague legend of the Moon-Eyed people that remains their legacy. The Yunwe Sudi, I should know how to say this. I'm just going to say little people. The little people are sometimes confused by folklorists with the Nunahi, though the Yunwi Sudi never took on the appearance of people as did the Nunahi. These little people, while generally, generally friendly, did not like to be followed. No taller than a normal Cherokee's knee, the handsome long haired little people kept their houses and towns secret with a vengeance. 
the Yunwi Sudi so valued their privacy that they were known to put death curses on any Cherokee who located one of their homes and revealed its location. Mm-hmm. The folklore of the Cherokee includes stories of villagers who died after revealing the location of a dwelling place of the Yunwi Sudi. Other Cherokee mountain fairies were individual spirits. De Sato was a small boy who ran into the woods to avoid a spanking. He has tried to keep himself invisible ever since. Reported to be handsome, though very small, De Sato spent most of his time hunting birds with his bow and arrow. He also fathered a great many children who were all just like him and were known by the same name. Whenever a flock of birds flew up suddenly in the mountains, it was said that DeSada was chasing them. Frequently, DeSada proved mischievous and hid a bird hunter's arrow that missed its target. When a Cherokee hunter couldn't find his arrow, he shouted a threat to spank DeSada unless the arrow was returned. In these cases, the hunter then easily found the missing arrow. Other Cherokee mountain fairies were to to Sawasi and to Sagasi, who helped deer hunters by allowing them to sneak up on their prey without startling it. Though good-natured, these two fairies were held responsible whenever a Cherokee hunter slipped or failed in the forest. There were other fairy spirits who were not evil but were known to play tricks on the Cherokee. For those who might be skeptical, skeptical of the existence of the spirit people and fairies of Western North Carolina, Evidence has been left behind. Besides the mounds and the mysterious smoke rising from underground Nunahee fireplaces, relics known as fairy crosses are sprinkled throughout the area. Found even to this day, fairy crosses are small crystals formed in the shape of a cross. Along with North Carolina gemstones, fairy crosses are polished to perfect symmetry and are valued additions to numerous gem and rock collections across the country. Found in the largest numbers in Cherokee and Clay counties, fairy crosses are believed by some to be the crystallized tears of the Nunahee. Others insist that the Nunahee were able to make themselves visible and invisible at will because they each possessed a fairy cross which they wore mm. on strings around their necks. I know, I love this. I'm going to wear mine now. <laughs> yeah, totally. None, I, got, I still need one. Um, none of you who lost their fairy crosses also lost the ability to become visible and were destined to live in the invisible world beneath the rocks and water forever. On the other hand, lucky is the person who finds a fairy cross lost by a none of you. A person in possession of a fairy cross has the power with the appropriate faith to become invisible at will. It should be noted that fairy crosses sold in shops throughout the region are done so, however, without guarantee. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put mine on a string now. (laughs) They're in all the shops here. Have you ever known anyone that found one um, out in the wild? Um, you can go look for them here. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's behind a gas station and there's a sign. <laughs> yeah. There's like a path behind there um, where you can look for them, where where they're found easily. Oh, shit. I haven't done that yet. I, I bought yeah. some. They're in every shop. You got a gas station. Yeah. yeah, you got to do that. Invisibility. Yeah. That could be useful. <laughs> that could be very useful. <laughs> nice. And I do have more, but I want to talk about um, um, listening to Cuckoo Town podcast this yeah. week yeah yeah me too made me, yeah it made me it was really good i had to listen to it twice because there's just so much information yeah and um and they were talking they mentioned blood consciousness like uh 
like blood knowledge, like your pedigree, your, your genealogy. Yeah. Um, like going back 15 generations is like your pedigree, I guess. Yeah. And so I, so I was like, Oh, I got to do that again now. <laughs> <laughs> so I started a little bit and then I looked at yours a little bit. I'll, I'll do better later after yeah. I signed back up for ancestry. Um, but yeah, yeah, so I went back, I think, 13 generations on one line, paternal, and um, ended up, it was like, I have it right here, it was like, um, it was like seven generations here in the Blue Ridge, right? So we've been here a while. Wow. And then before that, it was like Portsmouth, Rhode Island. Yeah. Which makes all the Lovecraft love. Yeah. <laughs> <That's pretty laughs> and cool. then, um, and the. The Massachusetts Bay Colony. Yeah, because they ended up in Rhode Island because they got kicked out with the Quakers. Yeah. Got kicked out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And then, um, which is a good thing. And then, um, <laughs> and then we ended up in Coventry, England, which I don't really know anything about, yeah, except yeah. when we looked it up. That's where Lady Godiva was. <laughs> oh, wow. And everybody knows the image of La Lady Godiva naked on a horse. <clears throat> yeah. But basically the story is um, her husband was um, putting heavy taxes on the people. Yeah. And she... She argued with him about it, like, you know, that's too much, that's ridiculous or whatever. And being a smart ass husband, he says something like, Well, you get on your horse and ride naked through town, right? And I'll lower the taxes. Yeah, and she's yeah. like, Hold my beer. Like <laughs> hold my beer, here we go. <laughs> so yeah, Lady Godiva. That's where I ended up. Not that I'm related to her, but I ended up in, in Coventry. Yeah. So that was my fun genealogy, people. It's not that hard. It's fun. Yeah. It's interesting. I've been meaning to fucking do it for years. And I haven't done. And when I quickly peeked at yours, you guys have been in that area where you're at, where we're talking about all the stuff, too, for a while. Yeah. And then we found out there's a little bit of Georgia. And I have yeah. some Georgia werewolf stories to share next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like perfect. Good. Um, yeah. Here, I'll do this one. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Bronx, New York, 1904. June 1904. Asking Captain Wilson of the Bronx Park Police Station last night asked the superintendent of the zoological gardens to try to take into custody a big brown owl for which the past three weeks has been scaring the policemen who were assigned to post 16, which is one of the most lonely posts in the gloomy old Bronx. For many days, it was believed that a winged, winged demon had um, hovered over post 16 and the policemen who were assigned to duty there came into the old station in Lorillard Mansion night. Night after night with wonderful tales of what had happened on the Hoodoo Post. Policeman Patrick J. Hickey said it was the most horrid thing he had ever encountered. <laughs> it's not an owl, said Hickey. It's a devil with wings. Sure, I know an owl when I see one, but no man ever seen an owl with wings six feet wide. And it hoos like a ghost in a graveyard, too. And when it's not growling beneath its breath. He's no owl. He's a devil. And I'm going to get transferred. <laughs> <laughs> and then Hickey was transferred. <laughs> 
a German policeman was assigned to post number 16, which takes in Laura Lard Lane. The German policeman had only been on the post an hour one night when he came running into the station house and shouted, I seen it. It had a stick in its claws and it tried to smash my head. <laughs> when I ducked, it ducked too. And I had to run behind a tree. I think it is supernatural. That's what I think. <laughs> then policeman Walter Keen was assigned to the hoodoo post and he got a transfer in a hurry after the strange creature on wings had knocked his helmet off while patrolling the lane. <laughs> policeman Frank Campbell, who was sent to the Bronx station from a downtown Manhattan precinct, was only on duty on post 16 for two nights when he encountered something strange that flew down from the trees and attacked him. He had not heard of the experiences of the other men who had been in post 16. But when he entered the station a few nights ago with his face scratched and his helmet battered in, he wrote out this report. Shortly before midnight, encountered a dark flying object with four legs, two wings. The beast attacked me if it was a beast and I fought back. Has the resemblance of a tall, slim man at times, and at other times assumes the form of a mountain dwarf. Oh. Last night, June 21st, Julius Wench, who resides at Bronxdale, ran into the police station and shouted for help. He told Sergeant Apple, who was at the desk, that he had been attacked by something wild that yelled like a tiger. He said the strange thing had carried away a young woman who was in his company, and he asked for the police assistance. Policemen Ollett and Baker were sent to rescue the girl, and they found her running through Laura Lard Lane screaming. She explained that a wild cat with wings had attacked her and had torn the feathers from her hat. The policeman went back to the station and recorded that it was undoubtedly the Big Brown Owl, which had been frightening policemen for the past three weeks. The acting captain notified the Bronx Park folks and a squad of men were sent out to capture the thing at midnight. No additional information as to what occurred. And this was from, where did I get this from? <laughs> Probably humanoid. <laughs> yeah, because it looks like it the way it's um, done. Um, what and year it says, was it? Uh, nights. 1904, wow. 1904. And uh, it says it's from, uh, he got it from Kate Massengill um, on the Magonia Exchange, and she always posts really great stuff, actually. And um, she got it from the New York Times, June 22nd, 1904. Wow. Wildcat Al, my mountain dwarf. That's a good one. <laughs> In New York City. How about that? I like that. <laughs> I love when these things scare the shit out of cops. Yeah, right. Like, it's not, like I'm not I'm not saying like against cops or something. I, I just No no no, because they're out there they're supposed to be expecting like whatever, right? Right. And... They're they're keen observers, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yes. And so um, when something fucky happens like that, you know, you get you get good details. <laughs> yes. You know. Like the mountain dwarf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Oh, and we were talking today because I can tell you when I'm annoyed or whatever. <laughs> it could be my ugly self. Um, <laughs> No, like you listen to podcasts sometimes and I was listening to one and the guy and it was actually and I don't want to, you know, talk trash about anybody, but it was actually like, I don't know, it was about like one of the ranches out west yeah. and I was like, oh, I want to hear this. And I think it was one of the guys that wrote a book about it. I'm like, oh, I want to hear this. Yeah. And then like halfway through, he's like, oh, yeah. And now he has like special abilities and he said he could cure cancer yeah and i was like all right 
I was like, we can't just have weird stuff happen to us. We have to be like special now. Yeah, and we have to charge a fee, of course. All right, it's like over the top at this point. Like you, you can cure cancer now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course. Fucking the um that makes me want to bring up something. The um um I was thinking about this very thing. And I remembered um, a long time ago, pre-internet, uh-huh. there was this um, underground book company called Loom Panics. And they would sell all these fucked up books, like how to make bombs, how to um, make LSD, how to do all these things. But they really did have really good books. Like they had chapters on everything and the... the um, the best thing about the new year was the new Loom Panics catalog would come and it was thick and you would, I would read that fucking thing for weeks, <laughs> just the catalog. And um, because there were so many books and, and like I said, this is pre-internet. So it was a big deal. All these strange books. And uh, um, they used to sell this book. And, and I never read it or anything, but it just popped in my head. It's called Scams from the Great Beyond. Oh, wow. And the subtitle is How to Make Easy Money Off of ESP, Astrology, UFOs, Crop Circles, Cattle Mutilations, Alien Abductions, Atlantis, Channeling, and Other New Age Nonsense. So oh, wow. I was sitting there thinking about it, and I was like, man, I got to re- like. I got to check that out. It, it's been 30 years and I still haven't checked it out, you know, right, sometimes right. stuff like that just pops in my head at random. So I got both of them. They were like four bucks each on Amazon, the Kindle, and there's two of them. And I love them. They're so good. <laughs> and do you feel like, Hey, maybe a lot of people read these. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, but no, they're really, really good. They, um, and I guess the guy's point of view is that it's all bullshit, you know? Right. And, um, I don't believe that you don't believe that, right. you know, we, we think there's genuine, Something is happening, paranormal. Right. <laughs> but so many people are completely full of shit in this. Right. That. And I think it can also become a popularity thing too, right? Like you get attention. Oh, yeah. Like people say they're afraid to tell their story, but then sometimes it turns around the opposite way where, well, now everybody wants to talk to me. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> like, right. And, um, and now I can cure cancer. Like, oh, when, okay. And we, yeah. And we <laughs> can have you that. come out here? Like, right, like, are you out there doing it? Yeah. Like, and uh, well, we had that conversation one time about, uh, one of our favorite podcasts had a guest on mm-hmm. and, and you were like oh, no. yes yeah like and even in the comments people were like are you fucking kidding me like she it it, it seemed to be that she had had every possible paranormal experience and and each one was like level red like right. she had done everything been through everything you know better than the best and it's like obvious this person is fucked up delusional (laughs) and and uh, you know narcissistic sociopathic whatever (laughs) and um i don't know i see a lot of it especially now with social media you know people are able to instantly put their stuff out there and um yeah there's a lot of it there's definitely diamonds in the rough though that people mm-hmm. I enjoy listening to and reading and mm-hmm. uh, who I don't think are full of shit. <laughs> yeah. And, and you find like fascinating stuff like Tim Renner, ha- uh, strange familiars has a new podcast, the flower yeah. path. Oh, it's great. I'll and listen to it today. It's about saints. Yeah. And it's like, there's some wild paranormal, interesting stories. And yeah. it might not be something that you've ever looked at. You know what I mean? And, so and it's like, wow good point and that one of the greatest things about um 
kind of getting into reading about the paranormal is it led me into folklore. Yeah. You know, to, to learn more about, especially about this area and yeah, um, things. It takes you down deep dives and you go in to find out about cool stuff you never knew before. So it's fun for me. <laughs> Definitely. I just, the, the thing that gets me is, like, um, how the fuck can you be in the paranormal things and not read? Right. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's impossible in, to me, you know? Like, <laughs> like, that's the most important thing, you know? Is reading. And, yeah. Yeah. And searching. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, most cool. of the... Um, I, I don't know. Most of the documentaries bore the shit out of me. Some of them are great. Like, remember, yeah. Remember the, um, uh, what was the guy's name? Our first episode. Oh, the uh, Love and Rockets? Yeah, yeah. Am I right? Is it yeah. Love and Rockets? That's it, no. yeah. Love and Saucers? No. Love and Saucers, yeah. Rockets, Love and Rockets. <laughs> I think that was a comic book and a band name. So. I know it's a band name. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll have to listen. We should play Love and Rockets now because yeah, no. we can't play <laughs> I know. Yeah, there's yeah, some good that, ones. That was so good. And they're so, I mean, of course, the golden unsolved mysteries, you know. Yeah. Just just, you know, even the, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, there's so many good ones, but um Yeah. But a lot yeah. of them are shit. And the new ones are good. I'm happy with those. Do oh, I was speaking of golden, if you look in the sky tonight, I will I guess Oh yeah, the would. Jupiter. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what's that gold star? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's pretty it's um, visible here. It looks really cool. Yeah. yeah. It's, nice. it's cool. Good stuff. Anything yeah. else? Yeah, I got one sh- more short one. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Yep. Okay. And uh, this is from Brad Steiger's Alien Meetings. Nice. UFO and eight men in Pennsylvania. Mr. and Mrs. Philip Arlotta had just stepped into their car, preparing to return home after visiting relatives in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. It was 10 o'clock in the evening of May 18, 1975. Ms. Arlotta had just had started the car's engine when she noticed a strange object just ahead of them in the sky. She mentioned it to her husband, who suggested that she turn off the engine. Perhaps they could hear something. The object was moving from east to west, and they described it as being about as big as a cantaloupe, oval, and bright yellow near the uh, near the bottom, but darker near the top. Mm-hmm. In the darker section were six square windows, which showed a red light behind them. The Arlottas heard no sound, but they continued to watch the object for about a minute before calling the relatives to join them. Five people witnessed the strange craft as it appeared to move toward them at what they estimated was an altitude of less than 1,000 feet. The craft suddenly made an abrupt right-angle turn to the left, and at the same time it changed color from yellow to orange before it began gaining altitude. The witnesses followed the object in the car. As they continued down a back road, they noticed that the object appeared smaller and orange. As they turned onto Route 130, they lost sight of the UFO, but they estimated that they had watched it for about four minutes. The next evening at about dusk, a lone motorist was heading to his home in Jeanette, Pennsylvania. When he entered that same area on Route 130, something caught his attention just to his left. He stopped his car and backed up. At a distance of a few hundred yards, he noticed what he thought was a German shepherd running. 
Mm. Although the movement was more like that of an ape than a dog. After a few seconds, the creature stood up on its hind legs and ran like a man into the woods. The creature was described as seven or eight feet tall and covered with thick black hair. The witness, who had been a Bigfoot skeptic in the past, suddenly found himself an instant convert. The UFO sighting on the first night and the creature sighting on the second night took place within one quarter mile of each other. Mm. This was the first creature sighting in this area in more than a year. A dog, man. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, I'll see if I can send you that uh, scams, if it'll let me send you scams from the great beyond. Okay. It's pretty neat. It goes, the first... Uh, uh, we'll be red. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, I know. Totally. Oh, you could. Uh, my God, especially in I the days. I don't think you and I could do it. We'd be like, I can't fucking pretend. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. That that's, that's the thing is you have to be a shitty person to do these things. But, um, yeah, the first um, section goes um, really into um, how phony psychics do cold readings. Mm-hmm. And it's oh, like fucking, yeah, it's great. It's very, very detailed, and uh, yeah, it's pretty neat. I'll have to share some of it on one of the episodes. Yeah, like how cold readings work, guys. Yes, yeah. that's a good idea. <laughs> yep, I'm gonna finish this one, and uh, we'll talk about it. Yep, it even goes into how they set up the old. Um, uh, the spiritualist in the um, uh, early 20th century and you know mm-hmm. all that um, and before that how they set up uh, phony parlors where they would do tricks to trick people right. like with right. mirrors and things like that before te- before the modern technology and it, it's it's pretty neat yeah that sounds like actually like treasure yeah (laughs) (laughs) nice yeah all righty all right we'll wrap it up we will be back we are back sometimes we disappear for a minute (laughs) yeah but we're back (laughs) yep all right all righty good night good night